Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Bob Wintermute, and once again, you're listening to the New Books and Military History channel of the New Books Network podcast. This episode brings us back again to the topic of biography and military history. Even though the Second World War continues to exert tremendous cultural and social influence on American historical writing, nearly 80 years after the United States ended the conflict, There remain a remarkable number of misplaced or even lost personalities who exert a tremendous impact in the course of the war. Now, I'm not talking about enlisted men or company-grade officers who undertook great heroic deeds or significantly important flat-grade officers who, who commanded in the field, but rather those whose efforts and accomplishments have been obscured up by others of their more flamboyant and well publicized peers. Today we're talking about someone who was perhaps one of the greatest examples of this lost personalities trope. Um, Our guest, Mark T. Calhoun, is the author of General Leslie J. McNair, Unsung Architect of the United States Army. Mark comes to us today from the United States Army Command and General Staff College, where he is an associate professor at the School of Advanced Military Studies. Before turning to academic pursuits, Mark served for 20 years in the Army as a rotary wing pilot. Uh, I believe he flew Chinook helicopters with the 101st Airborne Division in the first Gulf War, and also as an operational planner in 2005-2006. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. Yeah. As we begin first, I think we should offer the standard disclosure. Oh, yeah. Uh, the views that- Yeah, the views that Mark Calhoun are expressing in our interview are wholly his own and in no way reflect upon the official or informal policies or positions of the Defense Department, the U.S. Army, or the Commander General Staff College. The opinions expressed here are wholly his own. Does that work? Absolutely, and that is absolutely true. (laughs) Okay. Well, again... um, yeah, I think Leslie McNair is one of those figures that everyone thinks they know about, but really don't know. Um, right, right. How, how did you come to write a dissertation and later a book on General McNair? Yeah, it's a it's kind of a long story, I guess, um, or it took a long time for this to all kind of happen. I, I went to Command and General Staff College initially in 2002 and uh, did an MMAS or a master's thesis there on um, interwar period Army, mostly trying to assess whether um, leadership, training, doctrine, equipment, or some combination of those things led to the challenges that the U.S. Army experienced in North Africa, uh, especially the Kasserine Pass campaign. Uh, and, and at that time, I think I still had a pretty rudimentary understanding of World War II history. Um, and so I read what I think were some of the kind of standard texts on uh, interwar, you know, all the various military innovation texts and things that had come out around that period when defense transformation was going on. And of course, Leslie McNair came up as a, a very important figure. Um, and at the time, I kind of absorbed what was written in a lot of the accounts that McNair wasn't a 
particularly talented general officer. He was just sort of uh, the guy in the position, but he was really kind of in over his head, especially, you know, that those two key positions is, uh, you know, the general headquarters chief of staff and then the commander of army ground forces. And he was, you know, generally portrayed as very much in over his head. And, uh, and so I kind of adopted that view. And then the next year I went to the school of advanced military studies and did another master's thesis, but that was focused on army transformation. Again, the sort of topic that McNair would have had a lot of interest in or had influence on for our uh, army as we've tried to transform over the years. So I got interested in them then. And of course, all that kind of got put aside until I retired. And when I began the PhD program, uh, working with Ted Wilson, I suggested McNair might be an interesting topic. Um, and the, it was interesting. The first thing he said to me was, well, you know, you might not uh, think so as highly of McNair as you do now after you've researched him. And so I thought that was interesting because he actually thought that I probably had a strong opinion of him as I went into the project, which was really the reverse. And then most of the other people I talked to had various opinions like, well, you know, McNair was just a staff officer. Is he really worth a dissertation? Um, which I thought was kind of surprising. And then the other common one was just that there aren't any papers. So uh, those kind of things just really intrigued me. And, um, and you I was, mentioned that there, there was, a, uh, I guess, a myth or a legend that his wife had burned all of his papers. Right. And, and I've, uh, you know, it's very interesting. I've, I've heard that from a lot of different places. Um, and that, that kind of thing really piqued my interest. I, I felt like it was a risk and I understood that, but I also felt like if there's anything out there, somebody needs to really make a concerted effort to find it. And so ironically, when I went to the Library of Congress, I found papers donated by Claire McNair, uh, Leslie's wife, to the Library of Congress after the war. Um, and they're, you know, they're complete. That doesn't appear to be anything missing from the papers, nothing uh, selectively removed. Um, so I think everything that's available in archives that's personal um, is kind of out there now. Most There may be some places that I just wasn't able to look that there are some things hidden away. Um, but I don't think there's anything else out there now. But I did find plenty of material, which I was very relieved about. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly critical for writing a dissertation, having plenty of material. <laughs> you know, I have to confess, you know, even I've had a generally bland view of Leslie McNair uh, as a student and scholar working in the field for the last 20 years. I mean, obviously, he suffered from a you know horrific demise just as his career was about to enter that next stage where you'd been brought more directly into, you know, the, in, into action and in, into leadership, but then also into the public's eye. But, you know, where he stood out for me for the most part was through episodes like his allegedly strong advocacy for tank destroyers that David E. Johnson outlines in his book, fast tanks and heavy bombers innovation of the U S army. 1917 to 1945. I'm not going to go into that right now. I mean, but clearly there's, there's so much more to say about General McNair that can clarify these positions. But I must first ask, and you've kind of already alluded to that. Has Leslie McNair been fairly treated by historians? And to what extent may that treatment that he has received affect your own work? Right. That's, and that's an important question. I, um, I'd struggle with that quite a bit. You know, when you look, um, at historians who've written about McNair, I kind of think they fall into a couple different categories. One might be that McNair obviously played a role tangential perhaps, but still played a role in whatever it was that they're writing about. And they felt like they needed to at least address the key issues that he was involved in, but they didn't have enough material maybe to know the background or all the details of what they were writing about. So 
it was more a, um, a error of omission, just not knowing enough to get the, um, you know, the story exactly right. And in other cases, I think there were people who perhaps uh, developed a negative view of him and then maybe read the material that they found uh, with a more negative bias or pers perspective than they might have otherwise. You know, after a while, I think historical consensus builds when enough people write similar things about someone or something. And that just kind of becomes the default position until someone else is able to kind of break through that. And I don't certainly don't think I've done that. I don't think I've changed many people's minds about General McNair, but if I've at least given them something to think about, then, you know, that I've accomplished my goal. So. Well, let's begin by talking about his early career, because, I mean, he's, he's a pretty remarkable individual. I mean, he's commissioned in 1904 as a first lieutenant. 14 years, you know, 1918, he's the Army's youngest brigadier general at the age of 35. And he's the head of the American Expeditionary Forces Artillery Training Program. Leaving aside the First World War for the moment, how does McNair stand out as a young officer in the first years of his career? You know, I think the main thing, I, the word I would uh, use to describe probably his main characteristic was innovation. I mean, he's obviously very uh, intelligent, very, very energetic and motivated. But the thing that I think made him really stand out was his ability to see problems and to try to find solutions that might not be available in the Army inventory or in doctrine, but that he was able to develop on his own. So a good example, uh, and I first heard about this in um, Matt Kaufman's book, The Regulars, uh, he, he wrote briefly about a, a road march, um, a field march that McNair took his artillery battery on when he was at Fort D.A. Russell in Wyoming. Um, and just the fact that he, you know, he married his wife, Claire, and took her back out there to, to Fort D.A. Russell. And just the fact that she lived on the, in that pretty extreme environment and in that very, very much immersive Army environment for, for that time is also very impressive. She was an impressive woman. Uh, but McNair took his battery on this extremely long road march down through Texas, from Wyoming down through Texas, up through Colorado. He did a firing mission that was the highest altitude firing mission to date uh, for U.S. Army Field Artillery and then returned back uh, to his base. And that was about a 500-mile road march, so it also record-setting. But while he did that, one of the problems he wanted to solve was the pack saddle uh, problem, the, the pack saddles that the Army had at the time for the mules that transported light art artillery ammunition. Uh, they injured the, the mules over time, and they also required contractors to load, which was very expensive. So he did develop this extremely detailed test, including a pack saddle that he designed himself with the help of his, his personnel, his soldiers and NCOs, and, and did a very thorough test of seven different types of pack saddles, including ones the British used, you know, various other pack saddles out there, a Spanish type, um, and, and, and ended up with a very detailed assessment of what he thought the best pack saddle would be to replace the one needed to be replaced. Of course, the ordnance department ended up having its own views, which is a common theme throughout McNair's career. But he did, uh, he did do some pretty amazing work and got the attention of the artillery branch because of it. How does he compare with, with other peer lieutenants? Only, not only from his class, but, you know, the, we can add to this the fabled 1915 USMA class. Right. I mean, is he on a par with them or, I, I think he was. I think he's, you know, part of part of the reason why I, I don't know that he's necessarily viewed as on par uh, with some of those is that he's he was a very humble and quiet guy. I mean, he's definitely a very, to use a term that's been used uh, disparagingly, he's a very workmanlike person. Um, but, you know, I don't view that as a negative thing. I think a workmanlike general can be as effective, um, just like a, an, 
you know, a charismatic and innovative general or uh, aggressive general and both have risks and both have benefits. So I think he just sort of, he was a quiet professional who was extremely respected, but he wasn't viewed as a future uh, star, maybe as much as some of the, the other officers were. Okay. okay. A lot of that is hindsight as well. I mean, we have to. Oh, absolutely. Honest. Yeah. Well, when France, McNair really had to excel in order to rise above the standards set by his peers to receive such a ready promotion. You know, if we look at his first World War career, what clues do we get as to how he would further mature as a leader in the peacetime army? So one of the one of the interesting things I found um, when I was looking through the field artillery journal, um, which the, it's a phenomenal resource. If other historians aren't aware of it out there, the young guys that are just getting started, uh, folks really need to take a look at that. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. It's all available online for free. And, and there's some amazing articles. One of the things I found was during the war, he wrote this very brief piece, um, fairly brief uh, field artillery and supporting, or I'm sorry, infantry and supporting guns, I believe was the title of the article. Um, and essentially what it was about is, the idea that that the infantry needed the artillery to be mobile and to be able to accompany the infantry in an advance, and if they, it, you know, until that the artillery was able to do that, its support to the infantry would be limited, and it would weaken the infantry's ability to penetrate and and then to actually, you know, uh, exploit any penetrations they were able to achieve. This was the the problem of the Western Front in World War Two or World War One. So he. he he wrote this article essentially to advocate for mobile guns, uh, given the the weight and uh, the cumbersomeness and the, the poor reliability of radios and other issues at the time. So to me, that kind of reveals how McNair was thinking combined arms uh, from a very young period in his career and was also aware that all the branches in the, in the combat arms of the ground forces, as they were called in World War II, needed each other to have their, their most, their, their, their uh, highest effect or effectiveness. Uh, so I think that really gave a clue very early on in his career that he was interested in making all the branches work better together. Well, after the end of the war, McNair reverts back to his permanent grade of major. Um, and we look at his career between 1920 and 1924. He goes to Oahu. He's the assistant chief of staff of operations there for the Hawaiian department. And I think that some could look at this now and think of it as almost like a plum assignment. You know, you, you're, you've demonstrated your competency and your ability. You're sent to Hawaii, which is you know never a strenuous post, I would imagine. Right. But McNair takes the job a lot more seriously than that. He does, yes. Yeah, what does yeah, he accomplish he, there, and how does it help his career? Yeah, so this, this uh, episode was probably one of the – maybe the most enlightening – uh, part of the study, as I went through all the research, um, he, he showed up in the Hawaii department and General Summerall was the commander and he made McNair his uh, his G3 or his operations officer. And at the time, G3 operations officers were also responsible for planning. You know, now we we in the Army, we have a plans section G5 and then the, the operations and they kind of look at the two different uh, aspects of operations. So he as he showed up and was put in this G3 position, General Summerall wanted the defense plan for Oahu updated. And it had, there was one in existence, but it hadn't been updated in several years. And there were a lot of changes to weaponry. Uh, for example, the, uh, the advent of aircraft and the ability to bomb uh, ships at sea that he wanted to update the plan to reflect those new capabilities. And McNair took that project on 
did a great deal of research in existing plans, strategic estimates, other, other things that were out there to help him understand the problem. And then to spend a lot of time, once he knew the problem he needed to solve, identifying different ways to solve it. And this included a very long, months-long test of the ability of, of coast artillery, anti-aircraft artillery, and aircraft to bomb ships at sea. So one of the things that made this so interesting is when you look at Billy Mitchell, uh, Billy Mitchell's record, if you go back and look at his testimony, you know, he was a great, great advocate of fixed wing aviation. Um, and he believed that it needed to be independent of ground forces, ground officers, because they didn't understand aviation enough or at, well enough to, to be good leaders of aviators or pilots. So, so basically McNair um, found himself battling Mitchell, even, even in person later on at Mitchell's court-martial, and he was able to show that Mitchell's assertion there was no defense plan of Oahu when he was there in 1923 was absolutely false. There was one, and it was actually in the process of being updated. The update was almost complete at that point. But Mitchell never spoke to McNair or Summerall or any of these other people when he was there. So, you know, perhaps he didn't have any way to know that. So, so, but that, that, another big thing for that, of that, for me was that McNair has always been portrayed from what I've, from what I'm aware of. I don't know of anything that's ever reflected that assignment and the experience he got in operations and war planning from that assignment. And I think that's really important to understand where he kind of drew those ideas from later in his career. Right. Well, you know, next he ends up on this very high-profile inner service board that's tasked to report to, directly to President Coolidge right. on military aviation. And, of course, you mentioned the Billy Mitchell controversy, which is no small thing in the late 1920s. You know, it takes a certain skill set, I think, to navigate this kind of tricky environment of high-profile assignments and then you know, being called into a testify at a very high profile trial what does he draw from these not not necessarily in terms of the immediate experience of being on the panel or interacting with mitchell but what does he draw from these i think perhaps i don't want to say emotionally but 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 certainly cognitively to shape his own perspectives on leadership and doctrine yeah so i i kind of have to I have to infer uh, somewhat because I don't have in access to any notes that McNair might have taken or comments he might have made about the experience directly. Yeah. But just looking at kind of what he went through and then thinking about how um, his actions reflect his thinking later in his career, I think probably it was one of his first real experiences with inner service rivalry or inner branch rivalry and just the reality of the peacetime army, uh, military really, but the army in his case struggling for limited resources in, a, in an austere environment, knowing that there's a possibility of war uh, down the road that yeah. the army still has to prepare for, even though the nation doesn't think it's, uh, it's likely. Yeah. And so uh, I think later in his career, um, although maybe not early, he, I think he was frustrated by it, but it hadn't really grown into a problem. But later in his career, especially during the war, the, these uh, branch rivalries and the, the competition for resources, for quality soldiers, recruits, the competition for equipment, funding to buy equipment, um, strategic priority for different uh, capabilities in the army, and how that would trickle down into relevance for the, that branch. And I think during the war, there's a, I mentioned in the book, when he says goodbye to his staff uh, to go to the front in the, that part of the war that you mentioned early, earlier on, he talked to his staff and he seemed very despondent. Uh, people who were in the room 
said that he, he seemed maybe not very positive about the army's chances and America's chances in winning this war. And the frustrations he mentioned were the same kinds of things, the, you know, the bloating of staffs because of commanders and staff officers, you just bring, you know, every, every person that they can get their hands on in onto the staff to ease that job. And in, you know, in doing so taking away a lot of the personnel from units that, that desperately needed them, especially young officers, company grade officers. So those kinds of things that, you know, General McNair thought he understood and the army should understand that's not the best way to do things. But instead, he saw the same kinds of squabbling over scraps that he, he saw in the 20s with the uh, General Mitchell situation. Well, the rest of his career in the 1920s and 1930s mirrors that of so many army officers. I mean, he has, he has stints teaching military science under the auspices of the ROTC. He attends the Army War College in 1928. Uh, he goes on to become a, assistant commander at a field artillery school. He obtains battalion command. Um, of course, in the 1930s, he takes over a um, civilian conservation corps district. How do these varied experiences shape his perspectives on on the military? Sure. So I, I think if you know, if I and this is definitely hindsight, but if I were to design a career path for an officer who's going to end up in the positions that General McNair was in during World War II. Um, I don't think I could think of a better sequence or, of assignments. Um, so ROTC taught him a great deal about not only training of officers, but also working with civilians. Uh, while he was at Purdue, he had interactions with um, anti-war uh, per- people who, who were on campus trying to, you know, essentially fight against the ROTC program and advocate for trying to get rid of these kind of programs and, and understanding that, you know, we need to avoid war at all costs. And General McNair's attitude was a very pragmatic attitude that we exist because war is always a possibility and we need to be prepared for it. Um, later later down the road, some of his other assignments, the Civilian Conservation Corps, um, although the policy was there will be no military training for pr- people in the Civilian Conservation Corps, military officers were put in command of these different um, organizations around the country. And they used the same kind of principles that they use in military training to train these civilians. They, they put in and administered schools. Um, they, they did construction projects. They, they did physical fitness. I mean, they, all kinds of things that were very similar to the things that they had to do when they brought new recruits in for the war and had to train those new recruits to be soldiers and go to, go to combat. Um, so, so these assignments really had a big impact on him. The, uh, the command really wasn't as, uh, as big a deal. Um, at that point, there was a reflagging going on, a lot of reorganization going on. Right, uh, right. But, I think you know, a lot of historians would look at that that those incidents of battalion command as, you know, being more central, more important than they really were. It's refreshing to hear you state that that it wasn't right. for him. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, you know the the criticism that he never served in a in a high level command is is certainly valid. Um, you know, before he had those positions during World War II, uh, but his experience, his path was different, but again, tailored, almost tailored to the, the jobs that he would hold later on. And I think it, it really did prepare him well. And, and it's another thing, you know, when you hear him described as just an artilleryman in some histories, but then you look at these things he did in the 20s and 30s, he was by, by far a, 
one of the best artillerymen in the army, but he was also a very experienced uh, trainer and operations officer and, you know, various other skills that he developed over those years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can equally make the argument as well, or the counter argument. Yeah, perhaps uh, McNair doesn't have the command experience that, you know, he, he should have had coming into the positions he held. But you can make the same argument about Dwight Eisenhower or Mark Clark or, or any other of, of the uh, the theater commanders or the army commanders in, Absolutely. In, the, in the Second World War. Right. Uh, there was just too much time between those wars. Um, and, th- you know, the people who would have been like General Summerall, for example, that there was just a little bit too much time between those wars. And you did have a bunch of officers who had either no combat experience or fairly minimal combat experience. But they, you know, they rose to the challenge. And I think uh, I think there are maybe uh, some of their characteristics that have been criticized over the years are really just aspects of sort of the American tradition and the way officers were trained and the way they they thought. Um, Different, but not necessarily worse than other officers that they faced on the battlefield. Sure, sure. Well, McNair's career takes a new turn when he's appointed executive officer uh, to the field artillery chief on April 20th, 1935. Again, how does McNair respond to this challenge? He, you know, he seemed to, he seemed to respond to it quite well. I think when he, when he ends up in that position, um, at this, at that point he had, he's, he's developed a very strong reputation within the artillery branch. And I think one of the reasons he did so well in that job was that they brought him there to do the same kinds of innovative projects that he had been working on, on his own voluntarily in some, in many cases throughout his career. Um, and so he really fell into a staff job that many officers might've not particularly found a, to be a plum assignment, but he was doing the kinds of things that he really liked to do and that benefited uh, the branch and the army. And of course, it wasn't long before he found himself in uh, in the division tests, the, the triangularization of the army d- division. He was the person responsible for designing and overseeing uh, first the army maneuvers of third army, which was a preliminary to the tests, and then the two different um, test processes. He developed both tests and then he oversaw the first one and he, he left for Fort Leavenworth right before the second one. So, so he, he had a huge influence on the army. And I think it was field artillery branch understanding his innovative abilities. They had him working on, for example, improved sites for the light artillery piece, another project that never came to fruition, but that he worked on and sent proposals to the um, ordnance branch. I think they were just a combination of too independent to be open to advice from the field, but also too beholden to the priorities at the highest levels of sort of the strategic uh, views, uh, what the next war is going to look like, and then what needs to be developed to fight that war. And many of the ground forces equipment, uh, like artillery pieces, just didn't rise to that level of priority at the big army level and at the ordnance branch level to really get the priority that they deserved. Well, he also develops this reputation as an ordnance expert, too, you point out. I mean, you have this great episode about the autogyro that seems to be almost a, a pet project for McNair at this time. That's right. Yeah, one, one of the biggest files. I, so Record Group 337 at um, the National Archives 2 in, um, in College Park, that archive is basically the contents of McNair's office after he died at the <laughs> 
It's really fascinating. So they emptied his desk drawers and put them in boxes and they st- they're still that sitting there at the archives in exactly that same condition. Um, so, you know, I found some, some fascinating things in, uh, in those files. And one of them was this very large uh, uh, folder that was essentially this months long project in which McNair decided that he was going to know, learn and know everything he could about the art of gyro to include learning about, um, uh, Oh, what's the term for it? Aerodynamic theory. Right. <laughs> There's a, there are actually photographs in this report that he wrote up in which he's showing how rotor blades respond to winds. And he's talking about gyroscopic precession and other things that you generally have to go to flight school to understand. But again, as a pet project, he traveled to the engineer uh, department for the company that was building these auto gyros that the army was going to test. And he spent enough time with them that he was, you know, conversant in the theories and the engineering um, that went into the project and could explain in great detail exactly what the capabilities and limitations of these autogyros were. It was really a fascinating report. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he even goes to the, I think you you report that he even goes to the extent of writing articles for public consumption. In, That's in right. I think the title science. of the article is, and now dot, 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 the autogyro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty, pretty humorous. Yeah. Getting a little bit more serious, um, what's McNair's part in developing FM 105? Oh, it's huge. Um, you know, so as as McNair wrapped up his um, division test, uh, you know, duties that he was, I think he was involved in that for a little over two years. Um, and then he gets tagged by General Marshall to go to Fort Leavenworth. And at Fort Leavenworth, uh, he served as the CAT commander, the Combined Arms uh, Command commander but you know since he so one of the, another area that McNair had a, a series of good assignments and were these PME assignments so just to be, backtrack a little bit right after World War one about 21 of the vet officers who were considered the best um, in the AEF were by name reassigned to Leavenworth to reopen the command and general staff college and General McNair was in that group uh, of course he went, reverted back to major. But while he was there, he he did classes and he also wrote doctrine. Um, then, of course, at the ROTC program, he did similar things. And so by the time he gets to uh, and, at, and at the War College, which I imagine we'll talk about at some point, too. Uh, so he has these different PME experiences and he's able to apply those at, at CAC when he's there from 1939 to 1940. And one of the main things he's he's known for is working on doctrine. Um, so 100-5 was a, a big uh, project that he was involved in, as well as anti-tank uh, gunnery, which is maybe less well known, although people do talk about his his work in that area. And I think with 100-5, again, it comes back to this idea of combined arms. Um, I think McNair wanted to the the army to see the branches as interdependent and equally important. Uh, I think he wanted to keep staffs lean. He wanted to uh, in, enable the army to arrive in combat well-trained and with sound doctrine that would enable everyone to work together as effectively as possible. Uh, you know, and I'm naturally, he understood like most officers at the time did that they weren't going to be able to predict everything and they needed to be, you know, agile and, and adaptable. But generally the idea was to, to train and to learn and prepare as effectively as possible. And 100-5 just reflected that kind of combined arms mentality, I think, throughout the force. Well, his career really accelerates between 1937 and 1941. You know, he gets his first permanent star in 1937. 
comes to the attention of Malin Craig, the, the Army's new chief of staff at that time, um, who, you know, brings McNair into the, the redesign of the infantry division, um, recasting the role of the infantry division's artillery park and such. He becomes the commandant of the Commander General Staff School after he receives his, his third star in 1939. Um, he's really at the forefront of all, all new weapons integration, you point out, at least on the artillery side. And, you know, you state, I'm going to quote, he epitomized the general staff officer, one not only possessing years of experience, but also a wide variety of skills honed in diverse and demanding positions. McNair was no longer merely a field artillery officer. End quote. And, you know, we, we've, I think we've covered a lot of that up to this point, but there's also the cost that comes with that. You know, that's right. Can can you elaborate upon the relationship he has with with George C. Marshall when Marshall comes in, and perhaps how that reflects the cost he has to pay? Sure. Um, I I found out that they were they knew each other quite well uh, from the the deployment to France for World War One. They actually uh, occupied the same stateroom in the in the ship that they took over to France. Um, when they arrived, they thought they were going to go to the same unit, but. Um, in, in fact, what ended up happening was Marshall went to his unit and McNair got uh, pulled up to the AEF staff, um, which is where he worked. And I think, you know, as that kind of thing happens to an officer throughout their career, and it's it's true today as much as it was at the time, uh, I think we do have a tendency to think of officers or label officers maybe as, as either command track or really kind of staff officers. And today we've actually formalized that in what we call the functional area positions that officers can transition into in kind of at the midpoint of their careers, maybe the seventh or eighth year of their career. Um, so if they're not necessarily enjoying or performing as well as they'd like in the command track, the standard uh, progression, they can switch into a functional area that's essentially, you can stay a staff officer, possibly make full colonel and stay in the army as long as you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as the army likes to have you. Uh, so I think that's a recognition of this tendency we've had in the army for, for a very long time of this sort of cultural per- perception of different officers as either a command track officer or not. And I think whether he was really only suited well for one or the other, I think McNair did have a career that tracked him as a staff officer. Well, the nation faces the coming crisis throughout 1940. And uh, during that time, McNair finds himself in a new role. I mean, he's he's now negotiating mobilization and modernization with a whole alphabet soup of civilian offices and boards, as well as with Congress. How does he fare here in his work with the Office for Emergency Management, the War Production Board, and other groups? Yeah, that's an interesting story. That whole uh, that whole process of protective mobilization and the um, economic side behind it was a, a big area that I had you know, I had read a little bit about it, uh, but when I got into this project, it really took me down that path much more than I expected. Uh, I think all those different boards. Um, the army at the army level, sort of the the enterprise level, uh, General Summerall, or I'm sorry, Somerville was really the one who uh, was considered the the primary go go between. But of course, officers from across the army were involved. the The branch branches were involved, uh, working with those guys to try to get specifics of the equipment they needed. Uh, I think McNair would have liked to had more influence, um, but the once the mobilization process started, the machine was just so large 
and the uh, the process was really convoluted as well. You mentioned the alphabet soup of boards. Uh, it's it's really almost impossible to keep them all straight in your head unless you've really got it all written down and studied it. So I think McNair sort of realized that this machine was rolling along and there was only so much he could do to influence it. And over time, he I think he grew frustrated. Um, I, I've mentioned an anecdote uh, that I read in somewhere else in the book. I can't remember the source, but it's just a brief anecdote that one of the officers from the general headquarters was tasked to go um, answer a question to someone in industry about how many parachutes that they should be prepared to, to make for the army if they did in fact go to war. Um, and the number of parachutes that the uh, ordnance department was told by this officer from GHQ that they needed was uh, drastically lower than the number of parachutes it would take just to give to each person on the crew of a four person crewed aircraft. If you take all the aircraft the army planned to have during the war and multiply it by four, yeah. that was probably 10 times as many. And, and of course the army ended up needing many times more than that of parachutes. So it, it just revealed, I think, as these kinds of things happened, how unprepared people were for the, the vast scale of this mobilization and what it was really going to require. Um, and I think that, that gave the process of momentum that was just really put it on a path that you could only influence to a certain amount. And I think that that did build some frustration uh, on his part. And of course, the next part was the, um, the, the draftees and the quality, yeah. the quality problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is his position in, in terms of the manpower dilemma that takes shape yeah, so, in 1940? Right. Uh, so it's really interesting. McNair, um, he, he, I don't think he, I've never read anything in which he wants to, you know, pad the AGF with a disproportionately high number of the high quality recruits, but he did feel like they should be distributed evenly. Right. And, and of course they, they absolutely were not. Now it's not to say that any of the, that one or more of the services was, you know, solely complicit in this competition for the best recruits, but as they ranked recruits from one to five in both mental and physical capacity, the army ground forces based on army policy were receiving the vast majority of the lowest ranked personnel. And the reason for this, I think, and I never really read anything that just came out and said this, but it's really obvious as you look at the, the language and the, the perceptions of some of the people responsible for these ideas, uh, general or uh, president Roosevelt was known for saying that he saw the upcoming war as a war of machines. Right. And this largely goes back to um, the advances that have been made in naval and, and air power. And the idea at the time was that these new machines were so complex that you needed your best soldiers on those because you would need the mental capacity primarily, but also the physical capacity to up to keep up with the maintenance of these machines and to enable them to function as well as possible on the battlefield. And uh, so as as people looked at this and they thought, well, we need our, our most intelligent people on all these new machines we have, then it just sort of ended up natural that. Well, the infantry, that's, that's an old job. It's been around forever. Anybody can do that. Mm -hmm. And of course, as the war went on, that turned out to be absolutely not true. Um, another area that I think led to great frustration with uh, General McNair as he watched this process unfold. Well, in August 1940, you know, McNair transitions once again. Uh, this is when he becomes uh, Marshall's chief of staff at General Headquarters, which puts him directly to beck and call of the man many consider to be the, you know, the grand architect of American 
if not you know the entire Western Allied victory in the war. We've already established that Marshall and McNair had a relationship, so that that eases in the transition. How did Marshall envision McNair's role as his uh, chief of staff? Yeah, so so the you know one of the things that had a lot to do with all of this is the what was supposed to be the role of a general headquarters in the time in a in the event of war. Um, so essentially, general headquarters was envisioned as the headquarters that would oversee the mobilization process, and that would then, once that mobilization was complete and the army began to deploy, would become the Army Expeditionary Force headquarters forward. So the, that that was the general concept, but Marshall definitely did not see it that way. He viewed the War Department as the war, the combat headquarters uh, for the U.S. Army or the U.S. military, but. GHQ was really going to be solely responsible for training of the mobilizing units. And McNair had no problem with that. In fact, I think he preferred that. And as people tried to work through the role of GHQ as these ideas about what it was going to do changed, um, GHQ did still have some operational requirements. For example, there was going to be a, a small detachment put forward on Iceland. And McNair's staff was responsible for planning that. Uh, and as they were going through that process, there were conflicts with, with the War Department that started to make people see, okay, this isn't working. We need to delineate responsibilities so that we don't have this friction. And it turned out that General Headquarters was reduced to just a training uh, staff. And there were people on his staff, um, some of McNair's primary staff officers, who, you know, after the war wrote that they thought it was a big mistake and that GHQ should have functioned as traditionally uh, intended. But I think from McNair's perspective, it, it worked out fine the way uh, the way they did it. Well, let's return to the tank destroyer controversy. I mean, for me, this was always, you know, the big moment next to his death about Leslie McNair and his legacy. And I'm, I'm learning increasingly that perhaps I, sh- I should reevaluate this. First, can we, let's lay out the contours of, of the debate. And, and then second, I guess the general question is, is it fair to indict McNair as as the one individual who established the army's tank doctrine and 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 the choice of of vehicles? Yeah, sure. That I mean that really gets to the heart of the matter. So the the first um, the first question, you know, the sort of the shape of the of the debate. Um, McNair's position on this, and and it it's reflected in his um, anti tank. Um, Manual. It's a it's a tentative manual that was never formalized, uh, but it was a 1939 uh, uh, tentative manual, and he, he makes it all very clear in, in this manual as he lays out the way he sees tank battle and anti tank defense working. That he sees towed light anti tank guns is the best option. Um, they're they're easy to move. They're easy to put in a defilade position uh, to dig in, um, and and so he viewed that mobility and the the sort of the quick nature of that gun and its ability to really disappear at distance once you've had an opportunity to dig it in as strengths that would make it um, more effective against tanks than tank-like vehicles. And another thing was the efficiency thing. McNair viewed the efficiency of the light um, towed anti-tank gun as, as a huge advantage over the expensive anti-tank guns. His view was you kill a tank with a tank gun as opposed to killing a tank with another tank 
Um, he thought it was both more effective and more efficient. But the view at the time was definitely, uh, it definitely primarily over on the other side, which was that, you know, we need tanks uh, not only to fight offensively, but also to defend against enemy tanks. And so, so that was kind of the, the main shape of the debate. And of course, I'm sure most listeners are, are aware, but just to, you know, remind anyone that, that might not remember the any tank gun also has several really significant disadvantages. The turret is open topped. So air burst artillery is extremely deadly to uh, any tank crews. The armor is, is light, uh, relatively light because of the idea that these need to be mobile, uh, able to move quickly. So they're very vulnerable to enemy uh, guns, especially the, the high quality German tanks that we encountered on the battlefield. So that those things also added to the debate. Um, and, I think McNair made his point very clear. Uh, the question of whether he can be, you can pin the rose on McNair as the person who's responsible for the tank destroyer. This goes back to his relationship with general Marshall. Um, and I, it, it, this is something that I had wondered about. And Chris Gable, who was my advisor way back in one of those master's uh, projects back in the day, Chris Gable is one of the few historians I think that was aware of this before I did research to verify that Marshall di- dictated to McNair that, no, we're going to go with the tank destroyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Chris Gable mentioned that. Uh, and I think one of his, I think his publication on the maneuvers, maybe it might've been the anti-tank publication, but most other places you look, it's always McNair's name yeah. associated with the decision to go with tank destroyers as the primary defense against tanks. The other thing that's a little bit ironic about that, or just uh, baffling to me is that the idea of a decision at all, in military parlance is that's a commander's purview. And McNair was, was not a commander. Now he was a commander when he was with army ground forces from 42 to 44, but it was a functional role, not a true command role in the sense of battlefield command. Um, So I think McNair understood that he didn't have the ability to decide for the army, any kind of question about what sort of equipment we were going to develop. And when, when general Marshall gave him this directive, as any good officer would do, he saluted the flag and he he made it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some other things in this whole process that McNair had, didn't have much control over. One of General Marshall's ideas to make this uh, transition work better goes back again to army maneuvers and, and sort of the early advent of these tank and tank-like uh, systems. One, when the army first began experimenting with tanks, you had uh, the cavalry that had armored cars because there could only be one tank. So they called them armored cars. You had the infantry who wanted to make tanks really kind of an infantry support system. And then you had folks who not necessarily cavalry per se, but they saw just an independent role for tanks. And those three positions led to all kinds of inefficiency and and disputes and debates. And so General Marshall wanted to avoid letting the tank destroyer go down that road. And so what what he did is he, in addition to dictating their role in the army. He also dictated how they would be developed and trained. And they, they put a um, tank destroyer school at Camp Hood and General Marshall picked an officer who was on his war department uh, G3 staff as the commander of that school and of the tank destroyer force. So the doctrine development and the training development role was taken out of McNair's hands, even though he was the overall trainer for the army. That's interesting. Um, it is. And I think the reasons for it make sense. You know, we want to avoid the idea that any branch has more say over this system's role than any other. But it led to 
really, really significant problems. Well, the main one being the seek, strike, and destroy, um, you know, mentality. And that also became a, uh, the motto of, of the tank destroyer. So, you know, as they were doing their training, General Bruce, the, the tank destroyer center commander, and, and it's also interesting that it's a center. It's not a school. It's not, a, you know, it's a, so it's even given a name that kind of makes it kind of vague exactly what that school's role is. It's a center. Um, so as General Bruce is training his people, he instills and the doctrine instills this very aggressive, um, offensive minded mentality. The best defense is a good offense. Tank destroyers will see tanks, pursue them and attack them. Um, and that ended up basically exposing the tank destroyer to the greatest threat to it, which was enemy uh, guns, yeah. which could easily penetrate its armor. That are individual, you know, individual enemy anti-tank weapons, which we begin to see, right. you know, flourishing in, in Northwest Europe after 1944. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think that General McNair made his, his views heard until he knew that it would be dis- disloyal to continue doing so. And then he did his best to make it happen um, the way General Marshall wanted and once things were kind of taken out of his hands, there was really little he could do at that point to influence it. He'd already written doctrine about how he thought anti-tank gunnery should work, um, and his views weren't adopted, and he he accepted that. I don't know that he was happy about it as things turned out the way they did. I'll also just say, though, that the, the tank destroyer was not viewed uh, by the majority of people in the Army as a disaster during and after the war. In fact, if you look at the general board reports after World War II, the tank destroyer section of those reports it's very clear that the people on the board thought the tank destroyer had a long-term role in the army and their recommendations were to develop uh, stronger and faster and better gunned tank destroyers, not to get rid of them um, or to put them in a, a different role. So at the end of the war, people were very happy with how they performed because over time, the units that had access to tank destroyers learned how to use them um, in ways that sort of the, adjusted for a lot of those problems that they had adopted in the, in the earlier training of those systems and, hmm. and those people. Hmm. How is it then that McNair becomes saddled with this negative reputation over the tank destroyer? Again, I, I return if to I, David Johnson in, in his book. Well, yeah. So, so that, I think sometimes now, now David Johnson's book is very compelling. It's very well written and it has a clever title, fast tanks and heavy bombers. Oh yeah. I mean, you can't course. beat that. Yeah, and and I read that book when I was a young uh, his, historian working on my my first master's degree, and it just it was fascinating. I think every aspiring um, graduate student in military history has to read that book. I mean, it, it absolutely, is it is. It is. It's a seminal text. Um, and I, you know, I I think that as I go back and look at it now, I think it's really it has to do with the nature of of uh, David Johnson's research that some of the material he was looking at just cast of a pretty negative view on the tank destroyer and a very, um, you know, a very high level responsibility of McNair in this uh, process. And I think part of the reason for that goes back to 1939 as he's working on this anti-tank manual. And he really became in the army known as one of the experts in the army on ordnance, gunnery, and and anti-tank concepts. So later on, as this decision to go to the tank destroyer is made, Anybody who doesn't know exactly how it happened, it's natural that they would assume that McNair, chief trainer for the Army, the mobilizing Army, and the one of the main experts in the Army on gunnery, anti-tank gunnery, that he would be the guy who came up with that idea. And I think that just took hold. 
And it's something that we need to somehow unroot from the historical consciousness because it's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was a, you know, turn back to McNair. He was a very deeply private man. You describe, um, didn't care for publicity for being in the public's eye, but yet, after March 1942, he occupies this very visible, very public office of commander of U.S. Army Ground Forces. Now, you note this was part of the larger Army reorganization that was intended to clarify responsibilities and the coeval status of the Army's ground forces, air forces, and service forces. And, you know, I get that. Not only the, the question is not only how does McNair fit into this new position, how did he take to the idea of now being this public face of the army? Hmm. So it's interesting. I think he, if, if someone had said to him, "How do you think of yourself as the face of the army?" or what you know, I, I think he would have very much objected to any of anything like that. And I think that his views about being in a role like that, that would require him to work with civilians and to be a kind of a public face of the training of the army. Uh, he probably wasn't excited about that. That's not the kind of stuff that he liked to do. He wanted to be in the field with, with the troops. Absolutely. But uh, yet here he is attending, you know, Hollywood pre premieres, having a radio show and, and doing other things. Right. And, and the interesting thing is, even though he might not have liked those roles, anytime he found himself in one, he, he seemed to do very well. I mean, it, if you look at his actions, he might've been uncomfortable doing this stuff, but um, he was, he was clearly good at it. So for example, the, you mentioned the premiere for the, uh, oh gosh, what was it? The name of the musical they put on oh, this uh, for is the, the army. army. This is the army. That's yeah. right. And you know, when you see the photographs of him at, at going to that, he's with his wife, Claire, he's on, she's on his arm. they both have big smiles on their faces. They're interacting with diplomats from other countries and, and business leaders and, and senior military personnel. And he seems very comfortable with it and very happy. Um, and I think a more important uh, role that or a event that happened during the war that really kind of shows just how able he was to rise to this this type of challenge. Uh, the 1942 Armistice Day Address to the Troops. Um, he gave the uh, the speech was titled "The Struggle Is Survival: The Importance of Training and Personnel," but it came to be known as the "Kill or Be Killed" speech. Right. Um, and basically, by this point, this is, you know, 1942 Armistice Day, and it's the very earliest stages of the war. Some of those first battles have taken place. And in that early um, battle hardening process, not all of the army units had performed uh, all that well, uh, as one would expect for a new uh, uh, an army experiencing combat for the first time. Um, so what he wanted to do with his speech was really get a message out to the soldiers that they needed to understand that this was a, a situation in which they had to toughen up. They had to learn to hate the enemy. And he used that word, hate the enemy because it's kill or be killed. And if, and these guys are good. And if you don't learn quickly, you're going to die. And that message, you know, has been portrayed by some historians as um, for example, the press had a field day with, with the, the statement or this, this speech um, but one of the things in the collection that Claire McNair donated to the Library of Congress was a really well-organized set of letters um, and I think a couple of reviews as well, uh, just sort of editorial type uh, things that have been sent to various uh, publications that had views on the speech after the fact. And she had both one piece of paper had typed out 
um, negative reactions and the name of the person and everything. And so there were like little tables of contents. Right. And I think the number of positive reactions to the speech that she cataloged outnumbered the number of negative by probably five or six to one. Um, and as I looked at the different things that she had put in that folder, the different letters that she uh, received or, or that McNair received or clippings she found, uh, the people who were positive about it were very positive about it. Um, and most of the, re the reactions against the speech really kind of hung on that word hate. Right. And a lot of those responses were from uh, reverends or you know pastors from housewives or mothers of soldiers who were forward, even some fathers who were concerned about, do you really want my son to, to think this way? You know, and, and right. the, the answer was yes, absolutely. Right. So. What was, what was McNair's part in the creation of the army's infantry replacement program? This is another controversial aspect of his career. It is. Yes. So, so this is another area where McNair was, in a uh, kind of sidelined uh, for a while in this role, he the whole replacement program was put under a separate um, parallel kind of, of line of, of responsibility and all the various replacement centers. Um, and I think they separated Army Service Force, Army Ground Force, and Army Air Force replacements. So there was already that division, and McNair would have only been able to affect Army Ground Force replacements or, or their, their, that process. But then that was even even that was taken away and given to kind of a parallel um, set of people. But as the war went on and problems started to occur with the replacement program, General McNair, really at General Marshall's behest, became much more involved in it. And uh, he was given the authority to go in and start making changes and kind of hand in hand or around the same time as they extended the length of basic training and they, you know, added some. Uh, some of the things that they were getting reports back from the field that they thought soldiers needed more emphasis on. So he was working on improving things from, you know, as reports reflected from the field. And he was also trying to go into this replacement pro process that had already been set up and modify it so that it was streamlined and would get better trained recruits to units and in less time. So they had less time to get out of shape and to forget the things they'd learned in training. It's, it's interesting you said, you know, the controversy. Um, so I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Rush's book, Hell in the Hurricane. Yes. Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. And he's, you know, he, he was a sergeant major in the in the Army, and he, he did an extremely thorough uh, analysis of, you know, one unit's experience in the Hurricane, and, and he comes out very positive on the replacement program from personal experience that uh, replacements generally showed up when they were needed and performed you know, reasonably well. Uh, and so he had good things to say about the, the program, the process. I think he saw it probably as as good as it could be. Right. Um, and I think other people were very critical of things that absolutely were weaknesses, but to some extent, when you take individuals and you train them as individuals and send them off to just show up at some, you know, replacement station somewhere and then get grabbed by whoever to go to a unit. And often the soldiers weren't even utilized in their branch. You know, some units figured out quickly that, if I want to get good replacements, I need to send somebody from my unit to go handpick people, which is absolutely not allowed, right. but it happened all the time. Um, and, I, you know, these kind of frustrations, I think, just really, really mounted. And and with some people, they, they viewed these things as, you know, these soldiers aren't prepared for the combat they're going into. But I think McNair's view was they're only going to be able to, to get to a certain level of competence. And then that's just as, as good as they can get until they're with a unit. And they start doing that collective training that they need to do. So. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's also too the recognition well, I to the that I, I think it's also reflective too of the idea that you know the, the training was not completed after leaving boot camp or or any other advanced school. They still had to learn how to negotiate, how to navigate combat itself, and they would do that at the, at, at the side of their their peers in whatever unit that they were they were selected for. Um, That's right. Yeah, I mean, so so it's um, really interesting that the system that McNair oversaw for the uh, mobilization for the war is basically the same system we have now in terms of how we train a soldier as they enter the army. They go to basic training where they all receive identical training, and this was something that General McNair was very uh, very strong advocate for. He believed that new new recruits should all receive the same training, and that it was all about helping them. Um, learn what it means to be in the army, to develop the physical and intellectual ability to perform their mission, and and to develop that attitude that would enable them to arrive in combat and not uh, kind of fall under pressure and 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 rise to that challenge and get and battle hardened to the point that they could perform their jobs even in the toughest conditions. So so they did basic training, and then they went to their units and they did collective training, starting at the smallest unit, the the, the squad or section and then they worked all the way up to the division maneuvers, the the large unit maneuvers that Chris Gable and other people have written so much about. So that type of process is exactly the one we use today. And that collective training is immensely important. You know, soldiers come out of basic training better, but certainly nowhere near ready yet to do their job as a member of an, a military unit. Right. And that's essentially the level of training that, that the replacements received was just that basic training level. Yeah. So yeah, and I, I, so yeah, I, tough situation for everyone. Yeah, and I think it's also you know we overlook too is that you know the the worst accounts or the accounts of the worst integration experience involving replacements happens precisely at these extremely tenuous states in a campaign. For example, in the end stages in Normandy, or right after the Hurricane Forced, or during the Battle of the Bulge. That's when we hear about the collapse of the the replacement system when for the rest of the war, it seems to be working pretty, pretty seamlessly. Right. Right. And, it, you know, and I guess it, it all, you know, I think the other thing people need to re- remember is that the replacement pro- system as a concept for how we were going to do this um, was really driven by uh, strategic and, and resource uh, constraints that nobody really could have changed. Uh, the main the main thing that led, I think, to this problem was, you know, the the things that, that are weak about it, um, I think, are just things that you would see in any other, uh, you know, any situation where you have to take soldiers that really only get a couple of months worth of training or three months worth of training as individuals, and then they're sent right right up to the field. And, you know, waiting in some cases two or three months before they end up at a unit between travel time and, and just units trying to have a lull in, in combat activity so they can go back and get these new replacements and integrate them. Um, but I think some of the other problems with replacements that happened kind of go more to how the army resourced people, for example, in North Africa, and this is early in the war. So it's understandable, but we had all kinds of problems for such as training ammunition, showing up at the front and going into some of the 37 millimeter guns that were so criticized on our light tanks. And that training ammunition obviously just bounced off of enemy tanks. And many soldiers had never seen real ammunition and compared it to the training ammunition, and they couldn't identify the difference. And it wasn't until AGF inspectors showed up and identified this problem 
that people realized there was training ammunition mixed in with the regular supplies. They needed to get rid of that stuff. Um, soldiers were showing up unable to fire their assigned weapon. And in some cases that was due simply to the fact that we had all these units in the field with no divisions in reserve. And we had to get those replacements to the units when they needed them. And sometimes that meant rushing soldiers through training. And then at other times it meant soldiers, you know, being delayed, getting their units so long that they just forgot things that they'd learned in training. So that kind of thing happened um, throughout the war. But again, it was, there was probably very little that once the decision was made to go with individual replacements, as opposed to divisions coming in and out of the line, I really don't think there was much that they could do to make the replacement system really uh, as effective as, as a unit replacement type thing would have been. No, no, I agree. I agree. Well, the end of McNair's career, and sadly his life, comes about dramatically at the onset of Operation Cobra. You know, I'm willing to bet that nearly all of our listeners are familiar, at least in passing, with how this newly appointed first U.S. Army Group commander or FUSAG commander had strayed too close to the lines and was blown into smithereens during the 8th Air Force carpet bombing on July 25th, 1944. What's less known, though, is that this is not the first time he courted death in the Second World War. Where else right. did he come under fire? Yeah, so the, the, the first example of this was in North Africa. Um, and so to go back a little bit to, to the research that I did, um, I'm sure you know Tim Nininger. Yeah. So when I met him at the National Archives, when I first went there, one of the first things he told me about as he assisted me with this uh, research I did, and he, he was a huge help, I tell you, um, is he, he said one of, the, one of the best finds I've ever made here in the archives is a map that I found in McNair's um, records, and it, it was the map that he was holding while he was standing on a hillside watching an attack in North Africa. And you can tell it says because it has his name written on it in pencil and it has unit graphics added to the map to kind of show the, the situation as the action commenced. And then it has blood splatters across the map. And amazingly, it's not a copy of the map. It's the actual original map. You can actually feel the blood stains raised on the paper. It's very, um, it's a very emotive experience holding that map. Um, so I found that and that, that was a, a big discovery for me. But to go back to the story, McNair's up on this hillside. He's observing this attack. And what they didn't do is they didn't stay on the military crest. They had re- gotten too close to the top of the hill. And there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but that once the shrapnel, and McNair was hit in the arm and in the skull. And they actually had a piece of shrapnel embedded in his skull they had to pull out. He refused anesthesia. And this is the kind of wow. kind of people you had at the time, I guess. Um, and, of course, he also didn't take the downtime he should have when he got home. Uh, but anyway, he's he's up on this hillside and the shrapnel hits him. He's down on the ground. People come to help come to his aid. And I, the story is that he said, it appears I have incorrectly calculated my defil aid. <laughs> and that, that little story just gave me this impression of what sort of person he was and the way he expressed himself. Like, you know, like many people of the time, the, what's the dope? You know, those kind of yeah. expressions that just sounds so, so quaint now. Uh, so, yeah, he gets hit there in uh, North Africa. Uh, he's wounded, goes back, and he recovers fine. But then this time, he should, goes back to the front. And again, he's he's very determined to be seen by the soldiers, to try to help raise their morale. Um, and and part of the reason for that is the reason he's in, in Europe in the first place. And, of course, I think it's fairly well known that he went to be uh, the replacement commander of the, the 
false or imaginary first U.S. Army group yeah. as Patton was getting ready to leave to take over Third Army. But what I think a lot of people don't know is before that decision was made, McNair was on a short list of about three officers to take arm, an Army command. And uh, Eisenhower and Marshall uh, both thought that he was a very good candidate. Their one concern was the deafness issue. Right. Uh, but they, you know, everybody who I've seen weigh in on that, everyone agreed that the deafness at an army group commander level probably wouldn't be an issue for him, just like it hadn't been an issue for him in the other jobs he'd done over the time that he'd had that problem. So, so yeah, he shows up at the front and he's, he's, he's there for the initial short drop on the, the day before Cobra happens. Um, and so his aide and the other people uh, there with him strongly encouraged him not to go back to the front the next day. And this, this was after he'd come, come back, he'd moved forward to a forward position and he was in a, a trench with some soldiers. And so he had agreed not to go back, but that evening uh, he sees some soldiers and uh, I guess they're at Chow or doing whatever it is they're doing. And they, 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 they told him, sir, you know, it really, helped us to see you up there at the front. It made us feel a lot better and, and gave us confidence. Right. And that was all he needed to hear. Right. So the next day he, he went um, well forward. Uh, and of course the short drop this time uh, essentially obliterated the trench that he was in. Um, he was discovered to be missing. Nobody was really sure where he was. And then someone said, I think I saw him at the front. Um, and once the situation had um, settled down enough that they could, they went to look for General McNair and I think all they were able to find was a shoulder patch, his some of a uh, chunk of rank insignia, and also his West Point ring, which is now at, they have it at I believe they have it at West Point. Yeah, uh, archives there. Yeah, they do. I, so, I've always heard the story that the ring was all that was ring was all that was left. Right, and that you know you it's think? interesting. In some accounts, the ring doesn't come up, and in other ones, um, the ring does. But the the way they knew that it was McNair was the three the. Uh, the rank, the three-star rank. Yeah. How do you think he would have fared as an army commander? You know, that it, speculative, of course, I, I don't know that at, at the time and place, uh, as I mentioned, McNair was, was somewhat despondent about the way things were going in the army. Um, and many of these areas that he just had really strong ideas about the, uh, the padding of staffs was probably one of the biggest frustrations he had. And I have a, a, a brief analysis of that in the book where, a very interesting report, an AGF report that seems to have been suppressed. And I say that because if you go online and look for Army Ground Forces reports from World War II, you can find almost every one. They're numbered in sequential order, and almost every one of them is available online. But a couple of them are not. And one of the ones that was not available online anywhere that I could find um, was behind a DTIC paywall. And one of the researchers at the Combined Arms Research Library at um, Leavenworth was able to find it for me. And once you get into it, it's a staff officer who has very detailed G1 personnel statistics on the numbers of personnel on staffs in the ASF, AGF, and AAF. And it makes it very clear that the Air Forces and Service Forces had, you know, several times more personnel on their staffs than the ground forces did. And this was contributing a great deal to the shortage of quality troops to go into the ground forces at a time when they're taking about two-thirds of the casualties on the, at the front right. uh, across the army. So, so yeah, it was, a, and, and as he tried to convince General Marshall of these, this, these problems, it really wasn't until 1943 when he was able to give him that statistic that General Marshall realized the severity of the problem. And at that point it was really kind of too late to make any really significant changes in the, in the uh, sort of uh, 
cross-section of people that went into the ground forces. Right. Well, what is his legacy? I mean, how should we remember Leslie McNair, both within the institution, but then also, you know, as a representative of the civil military tradition? Sure. I, I think, I think um, one of the things that McNair should be remembered for is really his, he, he set the standard for what I think a professional staff officer should be. Um, he, he constantly sought self-improvement. He, he clearly did not seek positions for the career benefit that would accrue to him, uh, but went to positions that his talents could benefit the army and humbly and, and, and happily accepted those responsibilities and performed well, regardless of the type of the position. And that's something that I think, you know, it's, it's, it's no surprise that since command positions are viewed as such important positions for officers advancement, especially early in their career, that staff positions are kind of viewed as those little um, distractions from the things that people would really like to do. Many officers view it that way and no different now than it was then. So McNair was able to, to give a great example of how a staff officer ought to, ought to perform their duties. As far as the civil, and I think the other great legacy is, is just the training system that General McNair was able to put in place. And of course, it goes back to World War One. I. I don't know if you've seen um, "They Shall Not Grow Old" yet. Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was very fortunate to get to see that last week. Yeah, beautiful mu- movie. Um, and I was struck as I sat there with a couple of my historian friends watching it that that it so many of the things you saw soldiers doing in that in that movie are almost identical to what they were doing in World War Two. Oh sure, you know, training, and also really identical to my experience in basic training when I was a young private. So many things about the way we prepare people to be in the army remain essentially the same as they were over a century ago. And I think General McNair has a lot to do with that because he took his World War I experience, updated it to what was going on in the army as new equipment and new ideas were coming into play and essentially put in place the system that we still use today. And I think he's got to be remembered for that. So looking at General McNair's civil military relations, again, it was something that I don't think he sought out. And I don't think he necessarily uh, viewed it as something that he wanted to be involved in or was directly related to what he was going to do in his primary roles. But when he was in a position where he needed to do it, he interacted with civilians very effectively. So while he was at Purdue, General McNair had to deal with a uh, a pacifist uh, agitator, I guess you would call him. I mentioned him briefly earlier. And the interesting thing in that interaction was that General McNair was very respectful um, and he clearly understood the relationship between an army officer representing an organization and the civilians in the community. But at the same time, he wasn't, he wasn't afraid to advocate for the army's position. So for example, he, at one point, this, this minister was going to make a public presentation at a community center, I think. And the, the public was invited. And so General McNair, or at the time, Major McNair, picked a bunch of his uh, best and most senior cadets. And he, he worked with them to prepare them to ask questions of this, of this minister as he spoke to the group. And there were very, very pointed questions that got right to the heart of the matter and essentially made the case that whether we like the fact that war happens or not. It's an, it's, it's just a part of 
society that we have to be prepared to deal with. Um, and his ability to kind of make that argument and to do so forcefully, but so respectfully, and also to teach his young officers how to do that. I think that really shows just how skilled he was at those kind of, those kind of tasks. Well, Mark, we're on to the final questions. Um, you know, it's customary of us at the end of every interview to ask our guests first, uh, what their next project is. And then secondly, what they may be reading or viewing now that our listeners may want to check out on their own. So what's next? What's on your, your, uh, horizon? Yeah. So I've, uh, I guess in about the last year I've, I've, started working on a, what's probably going to be a, a fairly lengthy project on the 9th U.S. Army. Um, I, I grew interested in the 9th U.S. Army mostly because I, the, just the dearth of sources. And, yeah. uh, and as, I, as I read more and more about World War II, I'm just, just constantly surprised at how rarely General Simpson and the 9th Army even comes up. Um, and also, when, when you do read about General Simpson and 9th Army, they were really an exceptionally uh, high quality army. Yeah. Yeah. Everything um, I've, I've read from, you know, Eisenhower's lieutenants to, to more recent studies, I guess, Rick Atkinson all point out how solid a commander William Simpson was. And it, right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I just recently got back from London where I spent a week going through ninth army papers at the, uh, at their national archives and found some really great material. Um, I'm hope what I'm hoping to do is, is write a few, maybe a couple of articles about various aspects of their campaigning in preparation for a larger work, uh, you know, a monograph on an operational history of Ninth Army from Brest through the, uh, you know, the end of the war in Europe. Um, and I, so far I've found a, a pretty good, a bit of material. There's, there's stuff out there, but um, I don't know that there's going to be as much on Ninth Army itself as I, as I'm going to need. So I think I'm going to have to drill down into, some of uh, Simpson's staff officers, and then some of the other adjacent and subordinate commands, yeah. um, and their their perceptions of the things that happened to really be able to, to round it all out. But it's a it's it's already uh, it, it's one of those projects that's already kind of getting my my interest peaked right at the beginning. Oh, that's so grand, it's, yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun, um, and hopefully there'll be something coming out not too long from now on that. And I guess the other thing, I just recently had a chapter come out. Uh, the Army uh, is working, the, the Combined Arms Command is working on a concept called large-scale combat operations. Essentially the idea that that the types of wars we've been in uh, for the last several decades, you know, primarily smaller wars, um, in which there's a pretty significant disparity of size and quality of the, of the forces fighting each other, that in the future we might, again, face a peer or a near-peer threat in a more conventional type setting. And if that's the case, then we need to be prepared for that. Um, and so I wrote a, a chapter for the fires volume in this set of uh, books that came out on this new large scale combat operations concept and, and what it might look like in the future as we prepare for it. Uh, so that, that came out a little while, a little, I think in September, October. And uh, so those are the main things I'm working on now. This Sam's job kind of has me looking at lots <laughs> of different things <laughs> on my spare time. I will, I focus on world war two stuff. So. Well, that's good. Anyway, you're at least able to stay connected to that. What are you right. What are you reading or watching now that our listeners may want to check out? Yeah, so I think uh, the thing I'm reading right now that's most uh, connected to the topic of this book 
uh, CJ Dix um, from Victory to Stalemate. It's there, there are actually two volumes. It's the the title of these two volumes is Decisive and Indecisive Military Operations. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with it. Yeah, the first volume um, is is uh, what ETO, and the second is Soviet Front. That's right. That's right. So, uh, and you know, he makes the argument that you see initial victory uh, on the Western Front, and then it sort of degrades into a stalemate later on. Um, and he contrasts that with the the Eastern Front, where the Soviets start out in kind of a stalemated position after they manage to defend Moscow in forty one, um, and they end up in forty two in a stalemate, and then they finally turn the tide um, and and take the war back to to Berlin. So essentially, what he's trying to do, I think, is contrast the two fronts and show why they played out differently as far as the dynamics of the, of the combat. And they're, they're very interesting books. I think, uh, I think any reader who's interested in the fighting in Europe on either front would find them very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I've, I've read the second volume, uh, the Soviet front volume. Um, yeah, it was very, very insightful. I mean, it was, it was a good preparation for a course I was teaching on the Nazi Soviet war at the time. Um, my regret was that it was, a little too factually filled to give to graduate students at the stage they were at. Yes. Yeah. Definitely a lot of detail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anything else? Uh, pleasure reading, viewing. Um, yeah. So I'm also working right now on a couple of books that are more um, related to my, my uh, Sam's instruction, but one of them is rebooting Clausewitz by Coker, Christopher Coker. Um, and it's just a neat, book about Clausewitz, well, you know, one of the many, many books about Clausewitz. But the thing I like about it is it's like the idea is to give an introduction to Clausewitz, why you should read him, why he still matters to um, people who might be in, starting to study him for the, for the first time. Um, and it takes a very modern 21st century kind of view on uh, Clausewitz and his, his modern relevance and not just kind of analyzing him in his own time and place. So it's a, it's a very approachable and interesting book. And then the other thing I'm reading, just because I'm interested in it, is uh, The Enlightenment, History of an Idea by Vincenzo Ferrone. Um, so far, I'm, it's a very short book, about 150 pages, but it kind of goes into uh, plus notes and everything. But the, the main body is about 150 pages, and it goes into a lot of the main sort of intellectual and uh, cultural trends that shaped what we now call the Enlightenment. It's a very interesting book. There you have it. Well, Mark, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it, Bob. I do appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And to all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is your host, Bob Wintermute. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.